I don't know. Okay. Have you and Brooke? <laughs> There's no judgment in that. Okay. You're listening to the CXMH podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxenler. Holly, how are you this week? Hey, Robert. I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm uh, I'm good. Yeah, it's been uh, a good weekend here i know we're recording at the end of a weekend kind of the day before Mm -hmm. this comes out which is a little closer than we normally record yeah Uh, yeah. it's been a good weekend and no overall i think a pretty decent past weekend a half fish i guess since we last recorded (laughs) uh, an intro yeah Yeah. oh that's good what did y'all do this weekend we took a little bit of a trip for kind of Valentine's Day, just, uh, you know, a local Airbnb. It actually wasn't for Valentine's Day. So this actually mm. is, I think, I can't remember if I talked about this before, I think maybe briefly, but maybe I edited it out. I don't know. But mm. so we had scheduled an Airbnb for like one night back in January mm. and just, you know, hey, somewhere pretty close by in Atlanta, you know, maybe like an hour away max so that we don't spend all that time driving. And then Gray and Knox could go stay with my parents or whatever. And then we could just get like one night, you know, so essentially a 24 hour kind of turnaround. Yeah. Um, but just have one night kind of away, you know? Um, yeah. And so we had scheduled, booked that for back in January sometime. And the week of uh, was the week where everyone in the whole house besides me got sick. Oh, like, in one yeah. Night. Yes, yeah, I can't remember I if remember I edited that, that out. Of, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. we talked about it or not, but um, yeah. And so that night, everyone was getting sick except me, like including Knox, right? Um, and so we went on because we thought, okay, we're probably not going to go. It's in a couple days here, but we there's like a time span of when you can reschedule it without a fee or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so we said, okay, just push it to the next possible time, and then we'll figure it out because, like, we're clearly not going to sit down with calendars that night. Right, right, uh, right. And the next yeah, date no. that was available happened to be this past Friday, Valentine's Day. And so Aww. we just clicked it and then, like, clicked, you know, reschedule and thought, okay, we'll figure this out later. And then it ended up just, just working. And so Aww. it wasn't – we weren't trying to go away for Valentine's Day, but it ended up working out really well. So yeah, yeah. That's so good. Oh, I'm so glad that you and Brooke – had a chance to get away and for Gray to get his first little sleep overnight with grandparents mm-hmm. and that's yeah. so fun. Oh, good for yeah. y'all. That's good. What about y'all? Um, well, at least with, with Valentine's Day, our church that we've been going to for a little bit now, they had offered free childcare. So Corey and I were able to get out to go to dinner and then do one of our favorite dates is going to the local bookstore. <laughs> Nice. And yes. Um, and so we just kind of like walk up and down and look through books without having, you know, our sweet, sweet kiddos getting tired or impatient. And it's mm-hmm. so nice. It's like one of our favorite things to do. Um, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so we got to do that. So that was fun. And then this week we had um, Caitlin Curtis actually came to visit at Baylor and she got mm-hmm. to speak in chapel earlier you know this last week and man it just it was so good her talk was so good and it was so personal and it was beautiful and you know I know I put a picture up on Twitter I had a chance to 
to get to meet her and to talk with her a bit. And it just was such a delight to have her. And I just really, really loved getting to learn from her earlier this week. So that was really neat. Yeah, so. I was super jealous. Ah, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I think, you should, I think you texted me the picture. No, no, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but so I was jealous. It's you know, it's funny. We had connected years, like two, mm-hmm. three years back, whatever. Uh, yeah. She recorded a little snippet of something for the show a while back, but uh, she lives in Atlanta. You know, pretty close by. Mm-hmm. But you know, we've we've never actually ended up like meeting up like mm. to, to actually meet in person so you know it's funny that she went all the way there and got to meet you and she, we live in the same city yeah not, you know hey yeah at some point well do you want to or do you want me to tell a little bit about our guest today yeah why don't you go ahead and do it yeah we got the chance this week to talk with Stephanie Lobdell. She's the author of a new book, Signs of Life, Resurrecting Hope Out of Ordinary Losses. Uh, and also she's you know, a campus pastor, which is cool. We got to talk a little bit about campus ministry, which obviously is close to my heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then this idea of just kind of ordinary losses, right? What we do with those when it's the type of thing where we feel maybe like, oh, this isn't some huge, massive thing that we are allowed to quote right. unquote, take space for, but yeah. kind of having that space for ordinary losses and ones that maybe we don't think about often as losses. And so Mm -hmm. I thought it was a pretty interesting to talk about like things like that. Obviously that's something that you and I have talked about before in like on the show, but then also in therapy rooms and stuff, people say, well, I'm not really allowed to be that sad because it's Mm -hmm. not a big deal, but it is, you know, a lot of these things are big deals. And so, Yeah. um, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was good. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I think just naming naming those losses, it absolutely kind of helps the process of grief and kind of actually uh, moving through these losses by recognizing them and kind of knowing how to process through them. So that's what you know. She, we talk about in the episode and she writes about in the book and with each of these different deaths that she talks uh, through. So yeah, it was, you know, it was a great conversation. All right. Well, we will get right to it. Uh, I say right to it as if we hadn't already had a whole conversation, (laughs) but we'll get right to it now. And here is our episode, our interview with Stephanie Lobdell. Enjoy. Hey, today we are so excited to be joined by Stephanie Lobdell. She is a pastor and a writer whose work has been published in places like Christianity Today, Women Leaders, Mutuality, Holiness Today, a bunch of others. She served as a co-lead pastor with her husband for 10 years and is now the campus pastor at Mount Vernon Nazarene University. She lives in Ohio with her husband and her two children. She's also the author of the book that we're going to talk a lot about today, Signs of Life, Resurrecting Hope Out of Ordinary Losses. Stephanie, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for being here. Mm-hmm. Aside from kind of that very specific bio that we pulled mm-hmm. off online, is yeah. there anything else that uh, our audience should know about you? Um, well, I just I grew up a preacher's kid, so I've been a part of Christian practice for just a really long time. It's part of my family and um, just how I've lived my life, and so I'm very familiar with that kind of way of being. And I've only lived in Ohio for seven months, so I'm very new to this job of campus pastor. Well, I guess eight mm. months now. So um, pastoring a church is awesome and amazing and fun. And the Lord called us into this different direction of me pastoring a college campus. And I can assure you, it is vastly different. So oh, pastoring, yeah. pastoring yeah. just a slew of Gen Zs. That's my job. 
Mm. <laughs> yeah, so my background is actually in campus ministry. Oh, I no worked way. in campus ministry for a number of years, and my wife yeah. actually still runs a campus ministry. So okay. when I read that, I thought, okay, cool. Yep, I'm, I'm on board. Uh, <laughs> there so, you go. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Mm. Well, before we dig in a, a lot, you know, to the specifics, I'd love to hear about what led you to write this book, some of yeah. kind of your life before that, and then kind of what made this like, hey, I'm going to do this. Because writing a book takes a lot of energy and effort, right? So yes. can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I will. The kind of how I started writing kind of leads to how I started the book. And um, I've mentioned this elsewhere, but I think it merits repeating. Um, I um, had undergone a diagnosis with depression and anxiety when I was um, in college and um, had done basically kind of the, the gamut of medications, but um, that was no longer working. And so I kind of ended up taking this kind of it's not, I would say an alternative route. It's not really alternative anymore. It's pretty coming more well known, but deep uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. So it's kind of this daily treatment with this magnet. They, I say zap, it's not zap because it's not electrical, but right, it's different right. treatment where I call it, they zap uh, my brain mm -hmm. every day for a certain number of days or whatever. And it kind of resets the brain. Anyway, so after I, I went through that, um, my church was just so kind and so good to me and like brought me meals and made sure I had what I need. I mean, I was fine. Like I could drive and operate machinery and all the things, but just like to care for me, you know? And part of this treatment was that it woke a lot of um, emotions I hadn't experienced in just a really long time, like profound joy. Didn't really realize I hadn't felt that in a while. And then boom, you're just smacked mm. in the face with it over and over again. So I'm like crying during all the things, like commercials, any song whatsoever, put it to music. Mm. I was crying. And I mean, it was a beautiful awakening, but also annoying. I mean, I went through a lot of mascara. So I... After that time, I decided to write a love letter to my church. So I wrote a letter that basically was just um, expressing my love to them about how they cared for me. During that time, we had come out of a difficult pastorate and they had loved me through this really dark season. Um, and I just posted it online and it ended up being picked up through various connections uh, by an editor from um, one of the various editors they had at Christianity Today, one of their online um, branches at the time, who just said, hey, I've read this and I think it's really meaningful. Would you consider writing some queries for me. I was like, yeah, sure. Also, what's a query? Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, basically, which is just kind of a proposal, right? Say, hey, I'd like to write about this thing and this is why and here's what it would look like. And so I started doing that. I did that for about about seven to eight months. I was just querying and writing articles and whatnot. And I got an email from an editor that said, hey, from a, from a publishing house or a denomination, not my own, that said, hey, I think there might be a, a book in you. Would you be willing to have a conversation? And I was like, yeah, I don't know if you know, but my name's Stephanie Lobdell. I don't think you have my email correct. You know, mm. I, I was, it's such a thing of like, there's absolutely no way. And she said, I'd really like to see if there's something that maybe God has been stirring in you that might be able to tease that out and see if there's a book. And so there's a thing that has kind of reoccurred in my life. And it's this theme the Lord has been kind of bringing to the surface in my life a lot is the theme of resurrection and not like the actual resurrection of Jesus rising from the dead and not like this dramatic, I've had this terrible like cancer and the Lord brought me back from the brink type resurrection or I had 17 miscarriages mm. and then I had a baby. It's not like that, but just these ordinary, it felt like very, very ordinary losses, but for me caused real pain and trauma, like being diagnosed with a mental health disorder when you feel called into vocational ministry, like are those two things even compatible or um, having this very specific understanding of what my, my vocation would look like and hitting some gender walls and realizing, I mean, there's some, there's some mm -hmm. problems here. My expectations are not being met or, you know, things like that. Like they seem like ordinary, small, not even merit writing home to mom about losses, but that we all feel very, very deeply. And so the question I had begun to ask was, does the resurrection have anything to say, the resurrection of Christ and the power therein have anything to say to these ordinary losses that we all experience in our everyday life? 
And so that's kind of how I started writing the book. Like all the chapters is basically a death, like the death of my future, <laughs> the death mm -hmm. of the zeal. The de it's kind of grim, the titles, um, but all these things that I felt like died within me and then bearing witness to God's resurrection power in the midst of that, raising to life something profoundly more faithful in me and through me. And I kind of weave each chapter together with some narratives from scripture to kind of tease out this theme of God's resurrection power unleashed in the world, leading us towards new creation. Yeah, yeah. No, that's so good. I mean, I think it's fascinating how you are kind of pulling on these pieces around ordinary losses and, and just recognizing them and owning them and, and calling them out. I think that that's, it's just so fascinating how you do that. And you know, you, you started mentioning a little bit about the diagnosis that you had received um, a little bit earlier in the book and kind of the implications around that. And I, I just thought it was really interesting how you you talked about um, the diagnosis. You talked about, you know, the role that your mom had uh, yeah. when you found out and when you called her and then your professor. I mean, I'll be honest, as a professor myself, I, I was so humbled by your professor's response to receiving yeah. that diagnosis. And yeah, I, I just, I'd love for you to share a little bit about that. Yeah that part of your story. Yeah, for sure. So when I first got diagnosed by my doctor, I'd like, I had done all the things prior to going to the doctor. I thought, oh, I'm just sad or I'm just feeling stressed. And so I had done just a multitude of things to try to fix myself. And ultimately I ended up going to the doctor thinking, oh, maybe I like I'm low on vitamin B or something obscure. And knowing my medical history, knowing I have a family history of mental health um, issues, um, my doctor was like, let's connect the dots here. Like, it's pretty clear that this is going to be a part of your story too. And I was just crushed. I was so crushed. And I felt, immediately felt shame, felt very much like a failure in some inexplicable way. Like um, I hadn't, you know, trusted God adequately or if I truly loved Jesus, like I wouldn't be feeling these things because it's just such a, it takes over your whole body and your whole experience of the world. And it's not like you could take an Advil and it goes away. It's just not that clear. Um, and so I decided to call my mom to let her know, just so you know, like I, this is what the doctor said and they think I need to take, she thinks I need to take some medicine. And uh, my mom received me so graciously. Um, she said, now you remember what we always said, like diabetics, they take insulin because they need it because their body doesn't make what they need. It sounds like the mm -hmm. doctor thinks you need this because your body doesn't make something that you need. And that is okay. And there's no shame in that. I needed to take those pills. Mm. And she was so kind. She was just so gracious when she, you know, some parents can make their children's diagnoses of this nature kind of about them a little bit. Like if I had been a better parent or, you know, you're okay, mm. you're fine. And partly out of their own ego or their own feeling like, oh, I haven't done what I should do as a parent. You know, they can so easily become about the parent. I'm seeing that even more now as a college pastor, but my mom just, her ego was not in the conversation. She just received me where I was and just affirmed that and said, you you know, listen to the doctor and we'll move forward from here. And it was such a gift of grace, right? And yet I still felt terrible. Um, even having the affirmation from mom, I felt just felt just awful. Like how, how do I have a future? What is my future going to look like now that I have this diagnosis? Like I felt like a leper. And um, so the next morning I go to class because, and I say in the book, because that's what achievers do. We go to class, even though we feel like we're dying, we go to class. And mm -hmm. so I went to class knowing like I am actually dying inside, but it's fine. Um, and I sat down and professor came in just, he was a from someone we, I had a relationship with and he said, how you doing? And I was like, not well, you know, and I just mm. all over and just said, I've been diagnosed with this and they put me on meds. And he said, oh, really? Me too. And just that mm. moment, 
was such a game changer for me to recognize this guy was ordained. He was a professor. He was somebody that I loved and respected. And yet he too had this, this part of his story of mental health that he had to face on a regular basis. And so he, what he said after that changed the narrative of my experience with my illness and has changed really the course of my life and how I experience God in the world. He said, he said, every single morning when I have to take my pill with my breakfast, I say to myself today, this is God's means of grace to me. Mm -hmm. And the idea that God was somehow expressing God's grace to me via medication, to me, it seems foolish now because it seems so simple. But to me at that moment, um, it was such a blessing to think that maybe God comes to me, not just through my prolific journaling, confessing my sins of my youth, because I think God will fix it over and over and over again, or reading the scripture for hours and hours a day. And like, those are wonderful things, but also what if God's grace comes to us in these these kind of unorthodox or these ordinary channels in our life, such as the gift of science and medication and the things that help our brains work the way that they were designed to work? And so um, that really kind of flipped the script for me and allowed me to kind of accept um, what was already and allowed me to imagine a future in which my vocational call, my call to vocational ministry could coexist with this diagnosis and that they did not need to be mutually exclusive experiences. Hmm. Mm, that's yeah, it's so good. Yeah, this idea kind of reminds me of an episode we did a while back where Andy Colbert talked about like grieving our everyday losses, right? And yeah. how uh, making that matter, like stewarding those things well, then when there were like big kind of what we think of as grieving or losses or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. That stewarding the kind of day to day ones well will then equip us to steward the big ones well, right? Like that kind of idea. And so Mm -hmm. I I think that's so important because I'm sure you see this now in college ministry, but I work with a lot of adolescents and college age and like right out of college. And there is this like, well, nothing big happened. And so I'm not allowed to be upset, right? Like those types of things. And in particular, there's a number of, of, chunks in here right you said you group them together but death of future death of plans Mm -hmm. death of expectations right like I see a lot of right out of college people that they say like well what do I do now I thought that it was going to go this way I had this exact plan because we're such a future-based culture right now yeah and when that doesn't happen it kind of okay well what do I do with all that you know yeah that's and then not only do you have the negative experience of I'm feeling frustrated or despair, or we also have the feelings about your feelings, right? I'm ashamed that I cannot mm. handle this frustration. I am I'm angry that I cannot or that I'm struggling with this thing. And so it's just that added on layer of emotion and frustration. And for me, a lot of shame and even anger when I haven't been able to process those things well. And I don't want to, I want to reject that experience entirely. But I found that somehow in, in welcoming and in welcoming these deaths and acknowledging from what they truly are, instead of just trying to kind of exist in this perpetual narrative of bigger and brighter and better, which is just the American way, right? Every season of every show I've ever watched always has to be bigger and better and more dramatic. And, and if it's not, it's somehow a failure or it's somehow in decline. And so we don't really have any way of, of, of making sense of a story that includes failure or setback or frustration less flash and less shebang, right? And so yeah. a welcoming that grief and acknowledging those losses for me has been uh, very transformative and give me a lot of freedom. Mm, yeah, no, that's, that's good. Well, and it, it makes perfect sense. I love that Robert, you know, circled it back to that, just thinking about that episode with Andy and how that kind of primed a lot of, or I'm really hearing just so much of that echoing throughout your book. And 
And yeah, in so many ways, I think a lot of these, a lot of these losses that you outline throughout the book, in so many ways, I think we just idolize these um, in so many ways. And so being able to unravel that and unpack that and think about them in a new way and see some of the dark sides to each of these, I think is just so important um, for us to just not, you know, go into each of them blindly in some ways, but the beauty, but then to be able to see God show up in the beauty of each of these and how you unpacked that with each of them, I thought was, was just beautiful. So I was so thankful for that. I loved, so I'm curious just out of, yeah, just generally curious, what would you say was perhaps like the most difficult one for you to write about in this book? (laughs) I, did, I genuinely think when I wrote this book, I thought every chapter was the most difficult. Mm. <laughs> I would write them like, oh, for sure this one. Oh, for sure this one is the most uh-huh. difficult because everyone was so painful in this unique way. But um, looking back now, having written all of the chapters, two in particular stick out. But one, I think my husband would probably say is the most was the most painful just because he bore the brunt of it in terms of like my grief. Like I would get up in the morning, I would have like some quiet devotional time and then I'd write for about a 45 minute block. And then I would do my exercise and then I would get ready for the day. And so for like six weeks, I would do my writing and then I would do my exercise and I would literally be bawling as I'm like, I'm doing cardio. And he's like, when are we done with this chapter? This is not right. Because I was, Um, but it was actually the death of revival. And that talks about experience I had with, um, with our very first pastorate. We went through a really, really difficult pastorate. And I realized as I was writing this story of what I thought was going to be and the resurrection I had hoped for and imagined at that particular place and just the things that were not to be. And, um, there's just residual effects of just of sin and death and broken relationships. I realized as I wrote that, that I had not really fully grieved a lot of it. We had moved forward mm. we church and we were experiencing a lot of healing. But when I had to write the story, um, I really realized how deep the pain had been, um, how deep the kind of the, the narrative I had embraced of, okay, this is what resurrection looks like. God's going to do this thing and your church is going to grow and it's going to look this particular thing. And it didn't. And then there was these relational just traumas that happened that left me feeling extremely worthless and, and just without value. And like, who is ever going to hire me? Like I have nothing to offer the world. Um, I better, you know, like take up cross stitch or some other kind of like, I don't know, any house painting. I don't know what can, I don't know what to do with my mm. life now. You know, that's where I, that's the point where I was at. And so r- writing that story helped me really process a lot of that grief that I had just kind of, I had tucked away for a season, um, kind of hoping that with time it would, it would heal over. And a lot of it had healed. It was not quite as raw, but I still had to kind of dig through that and sift through those memories. And that was, that was pretty painful, but secondarily writing about just my mental health journey specifically. And um, when I had to go through the TMS was, pretty traumatic, even though it had, but bore such good fruit in my life. Um, it was very, very dis- disorienting to have this image of yourself and realize you were just powerless and that you need help and um, having to go through the kind of the the process of receiving this treatment and realizing how much time it was going to take and for my own self-care to do this thing. And it felt selfish. Like it felt selfish to go every mm. single day, go get treatment and, and having got, having to have this image of myself needing to die in order that this new image that is more deeply rooted in Christ and who I am in Christ might be born anew. Um, that was, that was hard to write because it was, it was just so honest. 
Yeah, no, that, that yeah. makes perfect sense. I, I could definitely feel when I read that chapter on the death of revival, um, just talking about the, the painful relationships and that brokenness, I, I could feel it. But there, there was one paragraph that I, I really highlighted that I appreciated in it where you talk about light. And, and I invite it. I mean, I don't know if you have the book nearby, if you want to read it. Oh, sure. It says, light is often characterized as a positive phenomenon. Light illuminates and inspires hope. Light enables us to see clearly what darkness has covered, but light also reveals. It uncovers what has been safely hidden in cobwebbed recesses. Once dawn is broken, there's no going back to the shelter of obscurity. I loved that paragraph, A, because, I mean, truthfully, light is my word. I do the word of the year stuff, and light is that, and this echoed so beautifully with kind of part of the reason for selecting it. But I think it so speaks to that darkness and the ways that things can be covered up and how shame can cover up things, especially when in that space of broken relationships. And I I don't know, I just could deeply feel the the pain that it's, that you – um, and your family were going through in that season. Yeah. So I love yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. If I, I mean, I'm, I'm also curious because obviously there's, you know, the death of blank is all these different chapters. Right. And yeah. I think obviously they're all like relevant for, for most of us or most of them at least are relevant for most of us in your work as like a pastor before, and then as a campus pastor now, yeah. are there like two or three that, you see most often in terms of like with your students or with yeah. uh, the people that you were pastoring that you would say, Hey, I really want to kind of unpack these ones because I see them all the time. Yeah. Death of zeal is a really intriguing one. So you might not know it from just the title of the chapter, but it kind of is uh, my first foray into uh, my own faith deconstruction. So, you know, I, like I said, at the very beginning of this episode, I grew up deeply, uh, deeply involved um, in, the, in the church and in a very healthy way. Like I was in healthy churches. They loved me well. But at every point in a person's life, we have to come to the point, especially if you've grown up in the faith, you have to come to this point where um, your faith must become your own. And some of these ideas, especially when you're in higher ed, um, you're being exposed to new ideas and new ways of seeing the world. And I realizing, and, and <laughs> you're dealing with a mental health crisis, uh, you have to kind of come face to face with the fact that who you understood God to be and all the answers that you had, um, sometimes, um, sometimes they no longer hold water. And you have to come to say, mm -hmm. okay, so um, what do I do? Do I throw out this entire thing called faith or do I allow these pieces, how I've understood the world and how I've understood who God is and how I relate to God um, to be um, almost torn down or disassembled um, in order that they might be reassembled into something more mature, um, something that can bear more weight in, in the world that we live in. And so um, I see that a lot with my students as they're, especially the ones that come from, you know, very strong, wonderful Christian families, but who are having to come to understand that faith must become their own and they must learn to um, be brave enough to um, ask some really hard questions of their faith and be willing to consider some possibilities that maybe there is a bigger or a different way to see the world um, and how God is operating in that world that's a little bit less self-centric and a little bit more um, creation redemptive say centric, if that makes sense. Um, a faith that doesn't revolve entirely around them getting their personal slate wiped clean, but about God redeeming all of creation. And and that can be very disruptive for a lot of for a lot of people. So um, the death of zeal is about me kind of coming in so gung-ho, going to save the world with this call to ministry and God really um, humbling me and um, 
kind of disassembling some of these ideas that I had about who God was and what ministry was, but really truly resurrecting something far more faithful that was centered on the person of Christ and what Christ is doing, not about my own energies and ability to kind of like rile up a crowd. Um, and so that's something that I think is essential for emerging adults to truly wrestle with is the death of zeal and realize that it's not, I mean, it is terminal in the fact that something has to die, but we with full trust can put our full faith um, that God will resurrect something new and more vibrant and more trustworthy as we allow God to reshape our view of God and of the world. Hmm, that's so yeah. good. Yeah. I'm really glad that Robert had asked about, you know, your role as uh, like in college ministry and the work that you do within the college ministry. Um, but I'd really be curious to talk a little bit about your role as a woman in ministry. That's something that I have grown to be more appreciative of as women step into these spaces of ministry. And in fact, the chapter on the death of expectations is the one that had the most underlines and notes on the side and highlights and just all the things that was, it just was such a beautiful chapter and what you write about Henry Nowen. And um, anyways, I would love to just create a little space for you to talk a bit about this journey for you as a role, uh, as a woman in ministry. For sure. Yeah. So I, um, I grew up in a church, my, our denomination has always, um, affirmed women in ministry, um, but like on our theology, that's never been an issue. Um, we've always ordained women, but we have not always practiced that very well. Um, so we have this beautiful theology of it, but haven't always practiced it terribly well. And so there was just a large gap in women leadership in our denomination for a very long time. And the women that I primarily saw in leadership were women that served as children's pastors, um, which is a wonderful vocation, but I don't like children. So that didn't seem like a viable option for me. <laughs> um, mm. And I also, I also saw them as missionaries. Um, and there's some colonial reasons why that is the case, which is unfortunate, but that's honestly where I saw most women. And so when I first began to feel kind of like the stirrings of the spirit inviting me to vocational Christian service, I, for like a brief second, I thought maybe, oh, maybe like my dad, like my dad, my dad's a senior pastor, but that immediately fizzled, immediately fizzled. Mm. And I just, like, didn't even ever entertain that again because I was like, I've never seen that thing. That doesn't make sense. And so I uh, felt instead felt this very distinct call into cross-cultural ministry and just pursued that with all that was in my heart, you know, just gave everything I could to that. Um, and there's some, some interesting stories that you probably the story of the urinal in the in the book. Uh-huh. Yes, Here, which I there. actually was shocked to see that, oh which I don't know why I would be, but you yeah. know, yeah. So my yeah. dad my dad's office, he's the lead pastor at the church, and his office had like a, ma a bathroom. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. I was 11 when we first came to that church. I was like, this is so cool, Dad. You got your own bathroom. This is so great. And then I walk in, and it's a urinal. And as an 11-year-old, I did not at all. I'm so, I mean, I'm kind of ashamed of it at this point. Like, I didn't mm, even perceive, yeah. like, oh, this is what this is saying. I was just thinking, like, well, you need toilets for other things. So, like, what are you going to do about that, you know? <laughs> um, so, that was the same thought that I God, yes. and later, I was like, wow, this space has specifically been constructed to exclude me. And mm. so no wonder I had such a stunted imagination. So anyway, um, my husband and I, I got married, we got married. I was still in college actually. And then right after I graduated, we hightailed it over to overseas and we served it cross-culturally for a while, for a year um, and came back to go to seminary. Um, and our intention was to go back overseas and just things did not kind of fall into place. And we ended up in pastoral ministry. And um, he was going to pastor a church and I was going to, you know, um, kind of serve just alongside him as I was going to seminary, but realized very quickly that 
no, like we're supposed to be doing this together. And partly that's my personality. Like I don't like to miss out on things. Like I was, mm. I was having FOMO before FOMO was a thing. And so like fear of missing out, like I was not going to miss this boat. Right. But also there was this sense that God was inviting me to, um, to be shaped into a shepherd not just someone who come in with all the wisdom and all the answers, but what does it truly mean to shepherd a people, to walk alongside a people and to guide them over time? And so we became co-pastors just a few months after that. Um, but I realized very quickly that what was given to my husband very freely, um, this title of, and he was still very young, so he had, you know, had to kind of earn his creds too, but what was given to him relatively freely, like Pastor Tommy, um, I was for years in that congregation almost always referred to as the pastor's wife. Like I actually had a degree master's mm. before my husband had even started his and mm-hmm. I was the pastor's wife, you know, things like that, that were just really hard. And over time, I think through faithful service and love to the congregation, I do believe that most of them came to see me and respect me as pastor, but it was a hard road. And then we went to our next parish in Idaho and they were wonderful and loved me. Um, but then in other levels of leadership in the denomination, there was pushback. Like um, when I first started writing about mental health stuff and that was making people uncom- a few people uncomfortable. He, one of the leaders had asked me like, well, does your husband like read what you write before you publish it? And oh I'm my just, gosh. I was like, oh, it's <laughs> wild, right? And then yeah. the gathering of young pastors and it came to Tommy and I was like, cool. Yeah, we'll be there. He's like, actually, no, you can't come. It's just for the guys. And yeah. I was like, and that was, Kenny was like, they need help balancing ministry and, and family life. And at the time I was pregnant with my second child. I had a toddler at home. I had dinner in the crock pot. I had a midwife appointment that day. And I was finishing a sermon on the Magnificat. And I was like, I don't know a person who needs more help than me. Mm. <laughs> you know, and it just felt in that moment, like I was not worthy. I was not worth their time. I was not worth investment. I was not worth mentoring. I was not worth any kind of investment in any way. Um, and I, I felt this deep insecurity. And this lasted for a very long time. And a spiritual director and another guide in my life kind of had to call this out in me that I became extremely proud, but in a way that was very defensive because I felt mm. felt the need to prove myself, partly because I felt like I'm only a pastor because I snuck in under my husband's umbrella. Like if we weren't co-pastoring, no one would even interview me, right? And so that made me feel like I had to work twice as hard and I did work twice as hard and I did good things, but I was proud at the same time being extremely, extremely fragile because I felt like I was going to be exposed. Like I'm just an imposter. Like I don't really belong here. Uh, I'm going to be exposed. And so when this call came to come serve at this college campus, this was the first time I had been invited to interview for a job by myself, not just with my husband. And I look and like, they were able to look at 10 years of ministry, obviously served as co-pastor, but all that I'd written and all my preaching, and they were able to see me as me for who I am and not just as the counterpart to this other individual. And so, and the person, the president is the person that I, that I answer to here at the university. And he's invested so much time in meeting with me and, and praying for me and just offering wisdom and guidance and actually mentoring me in a way that no one has ever saw fit to do before. Like no one ever had time or saw it like as worth their time. And he does. And I tell you that seeing, being seen like that and someone saying you are worth my time and my investment has given me such, such confidence and such courage to just lean more deeply into this call as, as campus pastor. And so it has been a a rough ride in some ways, like there's been challenges and there's been barriers, there's obstacles and, but somehow the Lord has used them as, as means of my own sanctification, like to uproot Mm. pride, to uproot, you know, to, to confirm that I I am beloved and that is nothing to do with uh, my performance. Um, And those are all lies that need to be uprooted. And 
the fact that I was a minority gender in this particular vocation was one of the tools that God used to do that in my life. And now here I am serving. I was, I'm the, the youngest and the uh, only female that has ever served in this role at this particular university. Um, wow. Yeah. And so it is interesting. Um, there's been some new ground to till, right? But overall, um, it's been it's been a good ride and um, they've made space for me. And I think they're a little bit excited as well to see something different. And there's been students, both male and female, who have come to me and said, I never thought I'd see this, but now I do. And now it makes me feel like I can actually do what God's called me to do and my gender doesn't have to be a deal. You know, and wow, what a gift to be able to say, like, God has been so faithful and bring me to this place in spite of like the speed bumps along the way. I, I can say that I am grateful for the redeeming and kind of the resurrecting work that God has done in me. Um, all these expectations of what I thought would be, but God has done such a restorative resurrecting work in me through that pain. Yeah. What I love about kind of the way you're talking about all this, right, is it's not because I know sometimes there's tricky theology where like God did this thing oh. so that this would happen, right? But mm-hmm. I, I love the way you're talking about it, <laughs> which is how we talk about it here on the mm-hmm. show, right? That yeah. There are really real painful things and that is real and God can then like redeem those things to accomplish things, right? But not, you no. know, kind of the causative or right. things like that. No. And the end result doesn't somehow diminish that the painful part. Right. Like came yeah, along with. Absolutely. I don't even like saying like there's people that say God caused and then there's people who will like to say the whole God allows. And I don't think I think that's just a grammatical nuance. I won't even go that far. I would just say there are things that happen in life because free will, we make choices and because down to our very DNA, we bear the marks of sin and death. Like my brain is not supposed to like be anxious and have the you know, that's not what God wanted and designed for creation, but the very molecular structure of creation itself bears the marks of sin and death. And we're seeing these signs of resurrection life, but truly only at the moment of our like full redemption will some of these things be healed in their entirety. And yet, and yet, even as we wait in the midst of that brokenness, medical or physical or psychological, God meets us in those places and says, I could work with that. I can take that and I can make good come from that. And like you said, doesn't delete the pain, but there is this hope that that nothing is wasted in the eyes of God. And for me, that has been mm. such a word of hope. Mm. Yeah. That's good. Well, I'm curious too, just just generally, like I know, you're, you know, you had talked a little bit about your husband in the book and, and a little bit about um, your family, but what, I mean, how would you describe like the role of your loved ones through this process of these, of each of these deaths and like what, yeah, yeah just like what, what role they've had through each of these processes? Yeah. Some of that is, is is challenging because some of them I really only understood as deaths and resurrections in retrospect. You know, when I was, once I was able to provide language that made a whole lot more sense. But I would say it's been a learning it's been a learning curve for all of us. Um, loving someone and living with someone um, who has mental health challenges is is hard. And so uh, he was I was diagnosed with um, with depression anxiety before we were even engaged. Um, and yet here we are. And um, <laughs> he had to, we both had to learn together. Like, what does it mean for us to to face this together? And he has his own challenges, his own baggage, his own things. Like, it's not like I was the one limping along and he had everything all figured out. We both brought different things to the table. But my particular thing I brought to the table was um, my mental health diagnosis. And so both of us had to learn. I had to learn to be able to um, to be honest about my experience. Um, I also had to learn to be patient and allow him to learn um, instead of being really frustrated that he couldn't understand or figure things out, right? Um, and then he had to learn um, 
what does it mean to to love me well? What do I need um, in times of crisis? And how he, he actually sometimes can identify, like, I feel like we're spiraling a bit. Let's talk about this. Let's kind of see if we can regroup a bit, sometimes even before I can see that. And so he just begun to notice and learn the signs in me. Um, but we've been married now. It'll be 14 years in August. And so, you know, I was diagnosed when I was a sophomore in college in 2004 or five-ish, something around there. And so it's been a long journey of figuring those things out. We went to counseling together for a long time, and that provided us with some really meaningful tools. Um, so it wasn't something that like, oh, love conquers all the things. And so it's not ever going to be a problem because we love each other. No, we needed actual tools. And we did a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, and he was able to kind of walk me through that, even some different mindset things, um, as well as just understanding how medication was affecting me um, and that it wasn't, you know, how it was affecting me. It wasn't a reflection on him. It was my, my body, how it was responding to the medication. And being able to have those really honest conversations was helpful, but it also was a lengthy, lengthy process. And so Patience has been a big piece of that um, in my my marriage, journeying with this mental health diagnosis. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's really good. And for my, yeah. for my parents too, like they've been so gracious and so wonderful, but they've had to learn as well. They've had to learn as well, like the language, like this, this isn't a bad day. Um, this is this is a different experience altogether. And you know, oftentimes the people that we love. They want us to not feel alone. And so when you tell them like I'm not okay, they're like, oh well, I had a bad day too because this happened that doesn't help. <laughs> you know, like I don't need, I don't want to be made to feel like, well, how you're feeling, everybody feels that way. It's totally fine. Actually, no, this is a different brand of a different brand of feeling altogether. And so we've had to learn how to talk about that. And sometimes I've had to have difficult conversations, but they've been so gracious to learn alongside me through that process that I've not ever felt like alone or cut off or broken beyond repair. Um, and they've been really kind and gracious to learn too. Yeah, mm, that's good. Yeah. Well, one thing we like to ask our guests, especially those who have written a book, right? But what is your hope for this book as I know it's been out for a couple months, but as it kind of continues to launch into the world, what would, yeah. what would you say is your hope for this? Oh, I hope that people, well, I, I will say up front, the person who I wrote this book for, I wrote this book for people who love Jesus very much, but are no longer willing to lie about what hurts. I want to give people permission permission to say, this hurts. Um, this was not okay. I suffered. And it doesn't have to be this big dramatic story. Um, there's not a hierarchy of pain, right? Like, yeah, there are things that have happened to people that are horrible and horrific. And I've never experienced some of those traumas, but that doesn't mean the pain that I've experienced doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, mean that they're too small for the eyes of God. And so I hope people who have experienced hurt and loss will be able to find some companionship in this story, but above all would come to learn that the power of the resurrection truly is at work in them and around them as the spirit would give them eyes to see that and they would lean fully into God's love for them. Um, that doesn't fix it, doesn't take all the way of the pain, but it certainly offers us a new vision for our present as well as our future. I'm not just some pie in the sky, whatever off in the, you know, the Netherlands, but rather hope for this moment that God is present with us in the midst of a suffer, um, in the midst of our suffering. That He is a God who suffers alongside us. So, that someone would have permission to acknowledge the pain, that experience companionship, and find God to be fully present to them in the midst of that suffering. Mm. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the show, um, dear listeners. You can pick up the book that Stephanie wrote called "Signs of Life: Resurrecting Hope Out of Ordinary Losses." 
Um, you can learn a little bit more about Stephanie and check her out at stephanielobdell.com um, or find her on Twitter and Instagram at S-R-D-L-O-B-D-E-L-L. I'll just spell it out. Um, but we'll have all the, the links to these in the show notes. Um, you're welcome to connect with Robert at robert-vore.com or on any social media at Robert Vore um, or connect with me at hollyoxhandler.com or on Twitter at hollyoxhandler. Stephanie, thank you again so very much for joining us today. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Well, just thank you so much. I just appreciate your hospitality and I appreciate this platform where we can talk about difficult things like mental health and realize it's a part of our experience and it's not indicative of failure. So I'm just so glad that you're making space for this kind of conversation for those who love Jesus and also suffer. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.